morning we're looking at Ephesians 5 and the idea that marriage makes us one. I don't know if you can see the background of the slideshow. It's a little blurry so that you can see the letters, but does anyone know what game that is? Life. Has, how many people have ever played Life before? Life is one of those famous board games that have been played by families for a long time. I have some fond memories of playing it growing up. In fact, in 1860, Milton Bradley invented the game of life by originally calling it the checkered game of life. Does anyone remember the original? <laughs> it was a popular parlor game. You actually had to go to a parlor if you wanted to play it. It quickly became just known as the game of life and then simply as life. It's a game that may have started in parlors, but it's quickly become one of the most popular family games ever. In fact, I remember growing up just like many of you remember growing up and playing it with your family. It's been a game that has been played for over 154 years in families now. That's a long time. For those of you who forget the game or never played it, it's a game that involves two to six players. As its name portrays, it's a game that portrays an individual's journey through life. You start out with uh, choosing if you want to take the high road and go to college, or you can go right into the career world. It's portraying college to retirement through jobs and marriage. For some of the players, they will achieve children, while others w may achieve money or even a visit to the poorhouse. In the first year alone, when it became a family game, it sold 45,000 copies. That's a large number by today's standards, nevertheless by then. It was considered a game of its time that had a strong moral message. After a successful run or a disappointing one in the game, it became popular just to say, that's life, as a way of processing what happened in the game. Did you just get 10 kids? That's life. Did you just lose all your money in a bad investment? That's life. Though it's a popular look at the American family life, life, it is far from an accurate portrayal. Portrayal. You advance the turn. You're, you advanced on the game by turning a wheel. You could select a number one through ten. Well, everyone starts by leaving high school. You start out with a few thousand dollars, and you get to face the college trek or the career journey. You start out with a small colored car. In new versions, they have a minivan because that's life. The game is won by becoming successful, successful, by achieving lots of kids, lots of money, and making the right investment decisions. You've got to, you can purchase homes, and you need to get enough money for retirement. That part might be life. The game is won by luck, but it's achieved through a few choices. Some choices are not good by choice. In the original versions, everyone was forced to stop at the church and get married. You remember that part? That's the part when you're a kid, you're like, wait a minute, I don't know if I want that part. But as you got older, it kind of became funny. There was a red line that no matter if you spun a 1 or a 10, you had to stop at the church and get married. Is that life? I want to show you a movie clip from 1961. It is the original commercial from the game of life.
I made 50,000 in the stock market today. I had twins. I went to the poor farm. I'm on Millionaire Acres. That's life. The game of life. The game of life. You will learn about life when you play the game of life. First you start out with 2,000 and a car. I got a car. You got a car. Then you may go straight to college just to get a lot of knowledge. Or to business if you think you'll go as far. I'll be a star. You may go far. The game of life. The game of life. Pay me. I'll get revenge. You'll get revenge. I've got revenge. You've got revenge. Milton Bradley makes the best games in the world. So play the game of life. That's life. Does anyone remember that commercial? <laughs> the Milton Bradley game Life tried to portray American family life, but the game isn't the only thing that has changed over the years. In the past 150 years, the game has actually had a change because the portrayal of family life has changed. Family life is less easily defined in today's time. There's no system or formula that qualifies things anymore. No one is forced by a little red line on a journey to stop at the church and get married anymore. While conservative alarmists and political instigators like to point to the changing face of family as signs of alarm that are degrading integrity and warning of the end times, I think there is just something more telling that's happening. We are losing the rhythm of life. We are losing rhythm in the way we do family life. Last week, Chelsea started us on a series uh, with her sermon, A Woman to Emulate, and our series is a look at family life. So today we look at part two. I teased Pastor Bob when he gave me this series because this is one of the areas in the Bible that many of us do not like to address the most. When we develop rhythms in our lives, our marriages are kind of an individual thing and a private thing. We don't like to hear about them talked from anywhere else. Over the years, We've not only systematically institutionalized the church, but also aspects of our family life. We, like the Pharisees, like to make line drawn in the sand formulas and expectations to monitor how life happens, especially our family lives. The problem with enforcing the red lines on a game board is that it requires people to get married and stuck at the church. And when people don't like that, they don't rebel against the institution we've built around it. They actually uh, push back against the uh, good things like marriage and the rhythm of marriage. We're experiencing a coup in every aspect of church and family life. I believe that's because we've replaced rhythm with a call to make people color within the lines. This series of family life is looking to redevelop our rhythm in family life. In 1993, one of my favorite movies hit the uh, American theaters. It was called Cool Runnings. Has anyone seen it? Cool Runnings is a uh, funny movie that is looking at the Jamaican bobsled team. Believe it or not, Jamaica has a bobsled team. And that's the joke of the movie. Is that at one time, Jamaica decided, hey, we want to join in the Olympics. And we want to have a bobsled team, too. Before that... They had only been in the Summer Olympics. Well, this hodgepodge group of socially rejected Olympians 
worked hard in the summer to prepare for competing in the Olympics. They re realized they didn't work together very well as a team. They didn't work together as one. In fact, if you've seen the movie, you know that they actually fall all over the place the first time they see ice. They lost control of their bobsled. They crashed. In fact, they crashed one time, and the other guy goes, Hey, man, you dead? And he's, No, man. They needed to develop a rhythm as a team, and they knew it. They developed a saying to keep themselves in check and in rhythm. So their bobsledman, Sanka Coffee, would yell this in a heartfelt motto to sync them together. Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Get on up. It's bobsled time. Cool runnings. These verses that we don't like to approach are really just Paul getting us in sync with each other so that we can understand how God's kingdom works. In essence, this is come feel the rhythm, come feel the rhyme. It's marriage time. We don't need any more pharisaical political rules to keep everyone in the country playing by our rules. We, we need to understand our rules as an expression of God's heart and an actual representation of his kingdom. We need to remind ourselves through the heartfelt uh, mottos to sync our lives together. This slogan that the bobsled team brought them together as one, this passage that Tracy read has the ability to bring us together as one in our marriages. These verses have been explained a million times over the past few thousand years. Just like the game of life, they've been cultured and recultured in their reading to make them comfortable for today's time. We try to make them socially and politically more accepting. However, I would argue that we've done an injustice to the scripture in hopes to make it something it's not. There really isn't anything scary about this chapter or the ones before it or after. Paul is just teaching us rhythm in life, rhythm in our family life. He's instructing us that Christians should feel called to relate to each other in a Christian home through submission. The main thing Paul highlights in these passages is the hope of willingly submitting. We hate to say that word in today's time, don't we? Mike Breen jokes that when the churches came to America, we said not everyone needs to be a priest, everyone needs to be a king. We do not like to submit to each other. We like to control our worlds and stay individualistic in our worlds. We like to limit the influences that come into our worlds. Our marriage is one of those bubbles. In this passage, and the passages after it, Paul is just teaching us to develop rhythm. In this chapter, he talks about wives and husbands. In the next one, children's and parents. The next one, slaves and masters. Then he tells everyone how to put on the whole armor of God. He's not saying this top-down formulaic idea of enforcing rules and making everyone stop at the red line. But he's saying, this is what God's design is. This is the rhythm God has designed. If you want to understand how the kingdom works, you need to understand how it works in your setting, in your context. Paul is writing these instructions and expressions because he wants us to understand the insight of the way of Jesus. No longer are we bound as followers of Jesus to legalism or a top-down instruction from the Pharisees. Now the followers of Jesus had freedom. However, Paul says these are still the ways we should feel called to do it 
because it's our identity in the kingdom of God. He's saying, yes, you are free. In, in, in Christ, there is no male, no female, right? We've, we've erased our identities and found our identity in God. But in our identity in God, we should feel called to develop this rhythm. So the first thing that we notice is this. Marriage is a rhythm. We see this back and forth play here that happens in the wives and husbands scripture. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband, it is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. As a fan of music, I go to a lot of concerts. You can tell when a band is not in sync, when they are not in rhythm together. Those of you who go to concerts or play in worship teams, you understand what I'm saying. There's sometimes you can just tell that these musicians are not jumping and jiving in rhythm together. It doesn't make a really good concert, does it? If you can't hear yourself in a monitor and you can't tell where other people are, it makes it really hard. Music depends on rhythm. Sure, there's times where a guitar will take lead or a vocalist will take lead, but eventually the lead submits again back into the rhythm of the song, right? What Paul is portraying here is this idea of a song. You do this, you do this, it works out this way, it portrays this way. He's developing a rhythm for us to follow. Marriage is a rhythm, it's a song. He spends a lot of time talking about what the husband does and what the wife does. He doesn't talk about it from a forceful, you must enforce this attitude. It's rather, this is how it works in the kingdom, and this is why. The why is because it mirrors the work of Christ on earth. It's a dance. It's how we make up parts of a song. It's a rhythm. It's made to mirror the work of Christ on earth because it's a subversive way in which God can use to bring his good news to the world. Let me say that again. It's made, marriage is made, to mirror the work of Christ on earth because it's a subversive way in which God can use us to bring his good news to the earth. When we become married, we learn that we become as one, right? We operate now as one. Marriage when working in rhythm, represents the kingdom of God to those all around us. Paul's calling them to submit to each other and submit in life so that they can subversively counteract the oppressive forces of the day willingly by submitting to each other and becoming as one in marriage. He's saying your marriage will reflect the kingdom. It's a subversive overthrow of what was happening in their time. The second thing we learn is marriage is about the kingdom. Marriage is about the kingdom. The husband is called to love the wife like Christ sacrificially loved the church. The wife is called to love her husband no matter what, to represent the unconditional love of Christ. We live in a society that makes marriage about us. We get married so that it fulfills something in us. 
But what Paul is saying is marriage is a representation of the kingdom. This is the way it works in the kingdom. This is the way it works in the church. And this is the way it works in the marriage. Why? Because he wants us to be about the kingdom. Jesus always said, I am about my father's business. Should our marriages be anything different if we are called to live just like Jesus? We live in a time where marriages are focused on if so-and-so does A, I'll do B, right? I'll meet relationships uh, when relationships meet my needs. We often say marriage is a 50-50, right? So what if that person isn't bringing their 50% to the table? Does that justify you not to bring your 50% to the table? It's that idea. As I think you had actually re- referenced this in uh, Asha's wedding, but um, a lot of people are now saying that marriage is 100%, right? You have to bring 100% to the table regardless. We must remain pressed in and submitted to God. The thing we learn about this rhythm is this. Verse 21, And brothers, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Do we see this idea that we submit to each other because someone is better than us? Or do we see that we're both to remain submitted to the kingdom? Brothers, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, or as you do to the Lord. It's not a replacement of who God is, but it's a willingness to put the other person first because it's about the kingdom. The last thing I want to talk about is this. Mission is to be part of marriage. Mission is to be part of marriage. Both husband and wife are called to submit to God and put the other one first. That's what we see in this rhythm. We don't see it about who's more important or who's taking solo in a song at this point. But we see this. We see that Paul is saying, put the other person first. Husbands, love your wife in the same way that Christ loved the church. But what did Christ do for the church? He was willing to go for a cro- to the cross for it. That doesn't speak so well to our individualistic idea of marriage, right? Both husband and wife are called to submit to God and put the other one first. There are three aspects of mission here. Put your spouse first. That way, you are serving in mission to your spouse. Remain pressed in and submitted to God. We see that both people are submitting to God. Serve together as one in God's plan, which is go and make disciples. The end game of Jesus is always the same. It's the kingdom of God. He was always about his father's business. He called his followers to do the same thing. Just because we are married doesn't excuse us from the fact that we are to live as one so that we can be on mission to those around us. We see in the end of that chapter, it says, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and a mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great illustration of the way of Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This whole chapter can be wound round up in that, from verse 32 on, or actually from 31 on. And the scriptures say, a man and his father leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united in one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration 
of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's a matter of putting the other one first, a matter of making sure our marriages reflect the kingdom, and they are about mission. On this earth, Jesus and the kingdom were intertwinable. Their work was the same. Our marriages are called to look like the church. Our marriages are called to look like the kingdom. If we expect the kingdom of God to come in here and the now and to change the world around it, we must make sure it's happening in our marriages first. The triangle is the strongest shape. You'll see there's a picture of a triangle right there. If you uh, want, you can follow along with this demonstration here. We put God on top, put husband there on the bottom uh, left, and wife on the bottom right. So the whole triangle represents the kingdom. A lot of times over the years, we've legalistically enforced this chapter to look like this. Put some arrows there. Over the years, this chapter has been misread this way a lot, right? God speaks to the husband who speaks to the wife, and that's how the wife connects with God. Those red lines that are up there are the traditional way of connecting this verse and I think Paul is developing something else. He's not saying replace God. He's not telling wives to submit their husbands and husbands love their wife as a way of replacing the system of who submits to God. But he does do this. He adds a few lines in there. He says you guys are equal. The triangle is the strongest shape. It's why it's used in bridge making, right? You pull on one side, the other side stays together and holds it together. So what we actually see here is God reveals to the husband and to the wife equally, right? Both are submitted equally. Both are on the equal playing field. But the important part is the husband is willing to put the wife first at all odds, and the wife is willing to put the husband to get first at all odds. This is what Paul's talking about. This is the rhythm that he's talking about. Rhythm involves downbeats and upbeats and different parts of a song. The way we've traditionally read this is just this downbeat, right? Just that idea that the arrows go this way and relay this way. This is the rhythm. You see it? You see how we are all equal and everyone is to submit to each other. It's not about making the other one fit the bill as much as to be willing to love and submit unconditionally, even to the point where it may put you on the cross. So instead of focusing on your spouse's weakness that prevents you from having a rhythm in your relationship, we have to ask ourselves two questions. To be as one, what must I surrender to have rhythm in our marriage? To be as one, what must I do in our marriage to develop that rhythm? Do you guys have those questions on the PowerPoint? To be as one, I must surrender. To be as one, I must do. We spend a lot of time in this scripture talking about where we see our partner doesn't line up. But Paul is actually addressing both husbands and wives to analyze their life and ask them, what doesn't line up? Why is it not working? If you're in a marriage and it isn't working, relax, no one else's is either. Paul lets us know how to fix our marriages, however. He lays out the song sheet to keep us in rhythm. 
If we aren't doing it this way, it's not going to fulfill its mission. It's not going to mirror the kingdom, and it's not going to work out. When musicians are in rhythm, they act as one. They become a song. When they are out of sync, they sound noisy, like a fighting couple. Perhaps the words of Johnny Cash can portray the invitation to marriage that Paul betrays here. Come on and get rhythm when you feel the blues. Right? You guys know that song? Come on, get rhythm. That's what Paul's inviting us to. He's inviting us to learn how the kingdom of God works, how the church works on earth, and live that out in our marriages so that it can not only develop a healthy rhythm, but it can also be about his mission and his kingdom in the here and the now. So if you feel that you're out of sync, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 is a time, is a scripture that you should take some time to read together. It's a song sheet of rhythm. It's easy to pinpoint what isn't working when we're willing to read that as what's not working for us rather than what our partner isn't doing in the rhythm. I invite the worship team back up at this time. I invite you to stand, and our closing song, we're going to sing an oldie, an old, um, how would you call it, song I learned when I was in the youth group, I guess you'd say, so that's pretty old. Um, this is my commandment, that you love one another, that your joy may be full, and that works in our marriages as well as in our relationship to one another here at church, in our lives. Um, we'll sing it through once, and then I, I encourage you to just people around you. Show them a little love and we'll keep singing a couple times, okay?